Father, I pray that you would quiet our hearts as we come before your word. We are being challenged this morning in a section that uh, deals with everyday life. And I pray, Father, that the teaching of your word this morning would be um, freed in a way that the Holy Spirit could make application as needs to be made to each of our lives. And Father, I pray that each of us would have a passion, a burning desire to know that our lives are significant in the kingdom of God. Be our teacher, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> our text today is in 1 Peter. I think these are numbered. Number 8, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. <clears throat> the text begins with the word finally. Finally what? To go back to chapter 2, we find out, I believe, how this text flows. Chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul says, or Peter, excuse me, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And here's one of the reasons, the main reason why, not the main, but one of the reasons. Verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, used there as a word to mean any unchristian, unsaved person, not just Gentiles, Jews, Gentiles, whatever, people that are unsaved, that's the significance of its use there. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Why? That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. To live honorably means, to just frankly, a, a, a lifestyle that's worthy of our Lord. That's what I believe is the guiding thought through this text that we've gone through for the last four weeks. And we get to the word, finally, at, in, in chapter, chapter 3. In verse 13 of chapter 2, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation, therefore, and he gives three illustrations that we've uh, considered over the last several weeks, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, the king or whoever. The relationship of a Christian to civil authority. We are to live honorably, Submitting ourselves to those, those things. And the word honorable and submit and respect are almost used interchangeably throughout these, these passages. In verses 13 to 17, we are to live honorably with respect to civil government. And then in chapter 18, servants, be submissive to your masters. And then in chapter 3, verse 1 and following, wives... Be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. 
these are three illustrations that are given, whether it be with civil government, at work, or at home, we are to live honorably because our lives are lived before a watching world. And how our lives are lived is a significant piece to how God seeks to reach out to a lost world. It's said in verse uh, 12 of chapter 2, that they might glorify God in the day of visitation. When God the Holy Spirit convicts their heart, God can use as a part of what he is drawing them to himself is our life. That is the the idea here. In each case, Peter is giving examples of his primary theme, which is honorable conduct among unbelievers. Now, he ties this instruction back to his purpose several times, as I just read in verse 12, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, in the case of an unsaved husband, it's by the conduct of the believing wife that God will use to bring him to to himself. Not always, but many times that's the case. And then in our text today, chapter 3, in verse 15, he says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. Living with an awareness that how we live impacts the unbeliever, I believe is the the main basic theme throughout this whole text. In the process of developing this, he points out repeatedly that living honorably before a watching world of unbelievers will mean, inevitably, facing pain. Suffering in general was his secondary theme, unjust suffering in particular. And we see this throughout the text in chapter 2, verse 12, when people speak against you. You will suffer wrongly. You will suffer for righteousness' sake. You will be defamed as evildoers. And you'll be you will suffer for for doing good. In verse 9 of our text today, we see that this is our calling, knowing that you were called to this, living before, honorably before a watching world and suffering for it, being persecuted because of it. And I want to just say right up front, if you've lived as a Christian for quite a few years and you've never You've never been opposed. You've never been ridiculed. Uh, You've never been slammed. My question would be, why not? You just can't live a victorious Christian life and not have people mock you, not have people ridicule you. if if, if, if you, If your life shows forth Christ, there's going to be people that don't like it. And if that never happens to you, I'm asking, why not? So here's the bottom line. The New Testament principle, verse 8. Finally, all of you, speaking of Christians, be of one mind, 
having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous, or live in humility toward each other. Living honorably before a watching world begins at home. It begins within the body of Christ. How many times uh, people say, well, the reason I'm not a Christian is because they can't get along. Churches are splitting, and you know, what's the deal? I don't be like that. God calls us, first of all, within the church, within our family, within our home, to live in honor toward each other and to live honorably. And then, verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you are called to this. We're to live honorably within our church, within our family as a body of believers, toward other believers. And we are to live honorably toward those without. We are to respond to reviling and cursing with blessing as our response. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Nothing is more dis- disconcerting, disarming, than or noteworthy than returning blessing for evil and reviling. The gospel, I believe, many, many years ago, many, 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 many years ago, Tuesday, this is an aside, I'm going on a rabbit trail here, this Tuesday, you've heard the Bible says, we're given three score and ten years. Three score and ten, that's 70. If by reason of strength you get 80, this Tuesday my warranty expires. <laughs> I turn 70. But like my mother, I'm going to apply for an extended warranty. She's done that twice. She is going to turn 96 this November. Her little brother, or actually her older brother, is only 98 and still going strong. So I, I guess uh, the, the genes are for the time. So 70 is no big deal. It's just another number, right? Those of you that are 70 know better. <clears throat> the gospel, I believe, many years ago taught me that the gospel and coming to faith in Christ is primarily not about me, about him. I and all of us who are in Christ were saved primarily to the praise of the glory of his grace. And the byproduct is our salvation, and we get to go to heaven and enjoy him in the here and now. But not only is it about to the praise of the glory of his grace, but it's, we're here for a reason beyond uh, putting a hat on our head. We're here to live before a watching world that they might be attracted to Christ. It's about him, it's about others, and incidentally, it's about us. Our calling is to others. Verse 9 concludes, knowing that you were called to this, to a lost world. And that's going to mean suffering, it's going to mean persecution. But the byproduct is that we might inherit a blessing. 
The word hoti there, Greek word, is the last half of a cause and effect clause. And the effect is that you might inherit a blessing. Or, yeah, a blessing. What is this blessing? I am convinced that, among other things, when we get to heaven, we're going to discover that there were people there that God used us in their life to bring them to him. Uh, My first grade Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Fisher, had a part in my coming to faith in Christ. We sing the little song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Mrs. Fisher told me and showed me. She loved me in the context of showing me Jesus. She had a significant part. She was being obedient to her calling. We are all called to a watching world in desperate need of a Savior to live our lives in such a way that some of them will even come to deal with And we're to be ready with an answer. We'll get to that in a minute. Peter reinforces his instructions by quoting from John, excuse me, from Psalm 34, verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That was the text that uh, Peter used uh, from the Old Testament to support what he was saying. So the bottom line, we are to live honorably before a watching world because they are watching. But how does that work out with boots on the ground? Verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Usually, most of the time, people are going to appreciate your lifestyle, generally speaking. The question, who will harm you if you do good? No one, usually. But sometimes... But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. The word simply means privileged, honored. Are you consciously aware of your significance in the purpose and plan of God on a daily basis in the lives of those around you? Are you consciously aware of it? Are you consciously aware that your life is significant and God's purpose and plan in the lives of those around you. I want to read um, from Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verse 10, "Blessed Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Uh, I've always had a hard time with this next verse. Rejoice 
and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I must admit, when I'm getting it from some so-and-so, and I'm supposed to bless and not curse, I'm supposed to blessing for evil, and whatever's going on, I don't feel like being exceedingly glad. I just, am I alone? Am I the only one? I thought so. But it says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Now, I have rejoiced and been exceedingly glad after the fact, later, as I think back on what happened, perhaps. But that's what Jesus said. You know, uh, I think the reaction like that many times are a barometer of how upfront we are and consistent in, and uh, there's a joy of the Lord show in our life, etc., etc. I think the point I'd like to make is do not be afraid. Don't be troubled. Don't settle for less. Don't let fear rob you of the joy of being persecuted. And never, 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 never be ashamed. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. Why should I be ashamed of it? Now, don't raise your hand. But, how many would have to raise their hand, if they had to, to say, to admit, that there have been times in your life, in encounters, where you were ashamed to admit you were who you were, a believer, a Christian, and you knew you could and should have spoken up, and you didn't, because you were ashamed. I have to confess, I've been there. I'll bet you every person in this room at some time or other has. The opportunity was there. You crawled off into the shadow. You gave up the opportunity that was before you. Usually, no problem. Sometimes, you're going to face the music. In either case, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Always. Here's what another said. Always live in, submission, in submissive communion with the Lord, loving and obeying him, and you have nothing to fear. Let me say it again. Always live in submissive communion at all times. Always consciously submissive communion with the Lord. Loving and obeying him. And you have nothing to fear. You know, there's nothing to fear when you know you're living in submissive communion with the Lord. I know that my life is immortal until God's purposes with me on this earth are done. And until that day, God who has numbered my days, I, my life is immortal. I don't need to worry. I don't need to be afraid. Uh, there's no safer place than to be in God's will. In, in submissive communion with him. I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My shack, your shack, and a bungalow. How, however you want to say that those three, those three Hebrew boys that faced the fiery furnace. As they stood before the king, they said, you know, uh, if we die, it's okay. But if not, know 
that the Lord is God, and there's one God and him alone we're going to serve. They were thrown in the furnace. They weren't harmed. In the suffering and the persecution, they faced death. God used that in that instance to bring a, a king to an amazing place. But they were ready to die. You know, what's so bad about that? What's so bad about dying? Now, if I asked you, do you want to go to heaven? Raise your hands. If I said, do you want to get on the bus that's leaving right now? Nobody raise your hand. Oh, you do. Okay. <laughs> All right. Figures. There's always one in the crowd. <clears throat> but you know, uh, death, I, I, I'm not afraid of death. I, I will admit to being afraid of dying sometimes. I, I, I don't want the pain. But, you know, that's something we're all going to face. But death is just the, the beginning of the fullness of life. And when God says it's time, it's time. And I'm not going to fight it. It'll be a glorious day. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then it says, be ready always to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. As you can see in the screen there, the, the word defense from the word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics, used in the, in the informal sense. It means just to, to give reasoned explanation. We must understand what we believe. And guys... We need to know why we what we believe. And then be able to give a reasoned explanation to those who would ask. We call this testimony or witness. The Greek word for witness is martyrion. It means witness, but it came to mean martyr those who died because of their witness. And as I have lived through the last 45 years of pastoral ministry and have observed how people, are, people who come to faith in Christ as adults, well over probably 95% of them came to faith in Christ through the process of a relationship with a Christian. A Christian who befriended somebody, entered into a relationship with them, or curiosity stirred up at work, or at school, wherever. And through that relationship of one-on-one, through the process of time, they came to faith in Christ. That's the process that I have seen 95% of the time of adults coming to faith in Christ is people that are able to give an answer. And they've lived honorably, and they have a basis for relationship and communication and speaking of Christ. And it tells us how the manner in which we are to do this with meekness and fear, nobody responds to angry defensive, arrogant, or self-righteous words, and having a good conscience. You have to live it if you're going to share it. And the issue boils down to authenticity. Are we infectious? Are we contagious? Do you live a life that other people would be curious to know about? You know, there's, there's, there's something about you that's, that's different. 
or I, I saw you react so-and-so. Uh, what, what, what's, what's this all about? Uh, tell me about it. Many times that's how God begins the process of bringing people to faith in Christ, in meekness and fear, having, having a good conscience. A lot of times uh, Christians don't uh, stand up for the Lord because they haven't been living for him. They don't have a pure conscience. That has to be the foundation if we're going to do, as this, as this text says. Well, with the bottom line, boots on the ground, we come to the blueprint of Christ, who suffered, verse 18, once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. <clears throat> Jesus suffered for our sins once. We'll come back to that because I think that is significant. But he did so, the just for the unjust. Unjust suffering is a good definition of persecution. And he did so that he might bring us to God. His suffering brought us to God through his death on the cross. Our suffering, when we are called to suffer because of our witness, sometimes is used by God to bring others to himself. And this is implied throughout this text. And the text concludes, verse 18 concludes, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I believe a much better translation, the literal translation is, but made alive in spirit. In his flesh, he died, and his spirit was still alive. And in Luke 23, 46 reads, When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. We know where Jesus' body, when he died, went. It went into a tomb. Where did his spirit go? Verse 19. By whom also, or in which also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. <clears throat> Who preached? Jesus. When Jesus died, he preached to some spirits in a prison somewhere. Now, the first thing we need to look at here is the word preached. It's caruso. It's not euangelizo, which means to share the good news. That's what we think of as a preacher evangelizing. He's sharing the good news. But Caruso simply means to, to declare, to proclaim. The town crier would ride through town and he says, Hear ye, hear ye! And he was making a proclamation or heralding something. That's the word that's used here. Jesus went somewhere and proclaimed something. Now to whom did he proclaim this? It says, To the spirits that were in prison. <clears throat> and they're identified in uh, this chapter as the spirits who were formerly disobedient 
during the time of Noah's day, while the ark was being prepared. We know this is talking about humans, because of the use of the word spirit. Uh, we're referred to in the, in the future tenses as souls, as in uh, Revelation 7 and elsewhere. But who, Jesus, to whom the spirits, in this case the demonic spirits, in the days of Noah. Now, where? Where's the prison? Hades? Well, that's the location of unsaved humans awaiting final judgment. Hades, that's Greek. Sheol, that's Hebrew. Hell, that's English. All referring to the same place. Tartarus, found in Luke 8.31, the location of demons, fallen angels, who are bound in the abyss. Uh, abyss and Tartarus seem to more or less be synonyms. Uh, the abyss, uh, referred to in Revelation 9.1, is literally the well of Abusan. And uh, my translation in my Bible says bottomless pit. The location of demons that were bound at the flood of Noah. And there's another term that we often hear, uh, the lake of fire, the eternal location of all, human and demon, who are outside of Christ. And this is said to be in Revelation, the second death. There is a remedy for physical death. It's called resurrection. And that has to be, uh, that is applied to those who place their faith in Christ. If you die apart from Christ, there is no remedy. And when you are cast into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, it is the second death because it is final. And I believe that, well, before I say this, there are myriads of demons. Paul said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against demonic powers that are alive and well, topside of planet Earth, under the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, Satan. There are some demons, however, that were confined to the abyss because of their sin of what they did. And I personally believe, and there is much conjecture on this, uh, not everybody's going to agree with what I'm saying here, just want you to know that up front, but I believe the sin in Genesis chapter 6, where demonic beings were said to somehow co-inhabit with the daughters of man, and their offspring would then some would corrupt the human race. I believe that's what was going on. That's what's described there in, in uh, Genesis 6. Many people say, oh, no, it was just demon-possessed people. Well, somehow I think the demonic world was trying to corrupt the human race. Why? so that the promised Messiah would be able to come. So God brought an end to the whole thing and saved eight people to keep the pure. That's my contention. Not everybody would agree with that. But the demons that were involved in this hideous thing were sent to this pit. Is that a part of the place given to where demons and humans outside of Christ are in waiting for final judgment. 
Now, what did he announce? Very simply, we're not told. But, I suspect we're giving a clue back in verse 18 when it says that Jesus died for our sins once. The victory was won at the cross. The title deed to the earth that Adam forfeited, clear back in Genesis chapter 3, was reclaimed. Jesus hasn't taken possession yet. He will, as we read in the book of Revelation. In fact, I want to read that right now. Revelation chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to God, and we shall reign on the earth. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The victory is won in Christ. He is seated in heaven. And I think the implication to this is that Jesus was proclaiming that the cross is behind, he has reclaimed the title deed to the earth, and their sentencing, it was permanent. It was final. It was the end. He was declaring victory. Your meat. You've lost any hope that you might have held out that Satan was somehow going to thwart God's plans. He didn't. You're cooked. You're dead meat. It's over. It's done. It's final. I'd like to also read Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, which says, At the cross... Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And then in John 12, 31, Jesus said, referring to his imminent crucifixion, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The text goes on to say Jesus not only suffered, that he not only preached to the spirits in the bottomless pit, but he then ascended to heaven in verse 22, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The position of exaltation and authority, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The fate of demons and humans apart from Christ was sealed forever at the cross. Likewise, the fate of all God's redeemed are sealed, for we are in Christ, in him, seated at the right hand of the Father. So much happened at the cross. The fate of demons was sealed The fate of those who are in Christ was sealed. 
And there is coming a day, and we read of it in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth away, and there was not found a place for them. And skipping down to verse 14, uh, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hell itself was delivered, de- delivered up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one according to their works. Then death and hell, Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you die apart from Christ, if you are one of Satan's demons, your fate is sealed. Those who are yet alive have opportunity to place their faith in Jesus, to come in repentant faith. Be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord Jesus. I give my life to you. I I trust you. I believe you. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. I mean, we come as beggars in need of a Savior. There's no pride in coming to faith in Christ. In fact, it cuts against our pride. There's hope if you are still breathing to place your faith in Christ. But once you die, eternal separation from God in a place called the lake of fire, which is the second death, and there is no second It's over. It's done. And I believe that Peter added this to help us understand the significance of living an honorable life before the lost world. To live our life in such a way that we can be significantly used in God's purpose and plan for the people that we rub shoulders with every day. Having a passion for the lost because the consequences of dying apart from Christ are horrible. So, in the meantime, verse 20, as in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, Genesis 6.3 tells us that was 120 years that Adam, or excuse me, that Noah and his family were busily building the ark. And during that 120 years, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we read that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people who was a preacher of righteousness. How would you like to preach for 120 years and have seven converts besides yourself? Eight souls were saved through water. And he goes on to say in verse 20, there is also an antitype, and it's simply this, when all the shavings are pushed away, as the ark of Noah, so the ark, Christ Jesus. The people that were in the ark were baptized without water. Not a drop of water got on them, but that's the picture. They were saved through the water, just like we are saved through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ark. 
The baptism that saves us is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Christ. Is your faith in Christ? Are you in the ark or not? There is no in-between. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us an option. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that because of your love that you sent Jesus Christ to die. And I would pray, Father, that our response to your love in our lives, as we've come to understand and by faith receive it and believe, is that we would be eager to live our lives in such a way that others would want to know what it is about us that makes us tick so differently. Why we march to the beat of a different drum. Why it is that we have a hope and there's no fear of death. Why, why, why? Father, may our lives be lived that way. Because there's an inheritance, there is a blessing that comes through that. And I would pray, Father, that, we, that our inheritance in each case would be so very rich with people in God's heaven that you used us in their lives to bring them to faith. May that be the desire in each, each and every one of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.